You're listening to the winning literary show, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio, live with host Denise Turney, author of the books Long Walk Up, Portia, Love Pour Over Me, Spiral, Love Has Many Faces, and Rosetta's Great Hope. Turn up your dial and get ready for a blast of feature author interviews, 411 on book festivals, writing conferences, and so much more. Ready? Let's go. Good morning, good morning, good morning out there, and I'm in prayer that this show goes well. My landline phone, I just went to reach for it, it's gone, and my cell phone does not always have good reception, so I'm going to ask my guests to be patient, and I'm going to ask myself to be patient. So I'm going to start with this quote from Brad Sugars, and his words can inspire, thoughts can provoke, but only action truly brings you closer to your dreams, and I so agree with that. Words can inspire, thoughts can provoke, but only action truly brings you closer to your dreams, and that's from Brad Sugars. And I want to welcome you. This is the Mother's Day weekend to our Saturday, May 13th show. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here with us this morning. And uh, before we introduce you to today's awesome guest, and I'm excited to talk talk to our guests and hoping my cell phone works right, uh, I just want to ask you how good of a mystery sleuth are you? Do you like to figure things out before it's revealed in the movie? I was watching a good mystery last night, and the ending was kind of surprising, which I do like with a mystery. And how much do you value relationships? If you value relationships and you love a good mystery, I encourage you to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me. You can get it in ebook or print book copy, and it's by yours truly, Denise Turney. If you don't see it on the shelves, just ask the clerk to get you a copy of Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney. There is a wonderful romantic relationship, but these two people are meant to be together. Then there are these five friends who Raymond Clark, he's, a, he's, a, he's on his way to the Olympics. He's a track and field standout. He meets them when he goes to college at Pennsylvania. That's also where he meets the love of his life. But he is a witness to a murder, too, and is one of his friends involved. If you love a good a love story, friendships, and a mystery. I think you'll really enjoy Love Pour Over Me. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. And this morning's guest is Max Friedman. Max worked for five years at WNET PBS as a publicist for Bill Moore's Journal and other programs. Then he was responsible for editorial projects at WNET. He also worked as head of communication at Bristol's Myers Squibb, I used to work across the street from him in Princeton. And he's also worked as a speech writer and freelancer. He authored two memoirs, one of Charles A. Hembold, Jr., a retired pharmaceutical company CEO, and that's a life lived full, and the other of his uh, wife, Monica Hembold, a retired, that's uh, Charles Hembold's wife, a retired clinical social worker and a co-founder with Queen Sylvia of Sweden of the World Childhood Foundation. And the foundation focuses on child trafficking and exploitation. And the title of that book is Designing a Life. Now, Painful Joy Off the Shelf listeners is Max Friedman's newest book, and it's based in part on his parents. They were Polish Holocaust survivors who lost everyone in their families during this horrific, awful, awful war. They survived the camps and then met and married in Sweden. And Max's writing, if you go over to his website, his, his writing is 
Or we're going to ask him if he does have a website. With my research, I don't think I came across one. But his writing is very engaging and impactful. He is a husband, a father, and a grandfather. We're absolutely honored to have Max with us here on Off the Shelf this morning. Welcome, 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 Max. Thank you. Can you hear me? I can hear you fine. I hear you fine. I guess my my cell phone is tricky sometimes, and I went to pick up my landline to dial into the show, and it was gone. So I got to get a new oh. a new landline phone uh, today. Okay. But I'm gonna keep okay. pushing forward. I've learned 17 years off the shelf. Just keep moving forward. So, but I want to Good. welcome you and thank you for being here. Sure. Thank you for having me. The first few questions I ask every single guest who comes on the show to give the listeners a little backstory on the guests before I start talking about their books. So to kick it off this morning, Max, can you tell off-the-shelf listeners where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? Sure. Uh, I was born in Sweden, uh, as was my older sister. Uh, We came to the United States in 1952, and we uh, grew up in Coney Island which is uh, at the southern tip of Brooklyn. It's where amusement parks are. People go to the beach there. And that's where we lived uh, until I was in sixth grade. Uh, It was a very difficult life. We were very poor. Uh, And my parents, uh, as, as we'll talk about, were Holocaust survivors. And they were still suffering great traumas. Uh, after the war and actually the entire lives. And so life for us, while we were living near an amusement park, uh, near the beach, we didn't go on any rides, uh, and we spent a good part of our lives uh, as young kids taking care of our parents instead of the other way around. That's Mm. that's the short answer. (laughs) Oh, 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 oh. Good thing you had siblings, you know, going through hardship. They say it's better going with a sibling than if you're on. Oh, yeah, you my, my child. sister was – exactly. My sister is wonderful. Uh, she, she's a, a few years older than me, and, uh, and it was the two of us uh, trying to take care of our parents against the world. Mm. Now, when you were a little boy, uh, uh, what, did you, what did you dream of becoming – when you when you grew up, what did you want to be when you grew up when you were a kid? I wanted to be Superboy when I grew up. Oh. Uh, I want, yeah. Well, I, I I wanted to be some magical figure who could, I, I mean, I hate to say, it, escape from the life I had. Uh, I, I when I was a very young child, uh, seven years and eight years old, I would actually, when my father was asleep on Saturdays. Uh, my mother and my sister would go looking for things they couldn't afford in downtown Brooklyn, clothes. Uh, I would actually take the subway uh, to the city in Manhattan, and I would ride up and down in elevators. I would get dressed up with a little bow tie, and I'd make believe I was an adult, uh, becoming part of an adult world, going to work, I carried a uh, manila envelope because we didn't have a briefcase and I didn't have one. But uh, it was this uh, great make-believe of what I could become when I was uh, grown up and away from where I lived and the life we had. It's amazing our imaginations when we're kids and we don't limit ourselves. We say, well, like you said, if I don't have a briefcase, I'm going to get something that makes it seem like I have one. Then we get older and we just – 
just put a, pump the brakes and we, we stop ourselves. Now, you said, how old were you again when your family came to the United States? I was just, I was just two years old. Uh, oh, we, you were super my, young. Yeah, we we were uh, again. We were living in Sweden. My my parents, uh, after their liberation from the concentration camps, uh, were taken by the Swedish Red Cross to Sweden to recuperate. They had terrible mal- malnutrition; had been beaten for many years. Uh, my mother had typhus, and so. Uh, they were there in other camps called alien camps, and they met, uh, and shortly after they met, pretty pretty much six months after they met, they married, and my sister came after that, and then I came a few years later. They tried to come to the United States for about seven years, and they couldn't. In the early part uh, of their marriage and of our living there, uh, the um, America wouldn't take any survivors from the camps. Uh, it, it was uh, it was a, a horrible time for America as well. So uh, they couldn't come even if they wanted to. Then eventually they did. My father had a cousin who had come to the United or cousins who had come to the United States back in the 1920s. And so they sponsored us, and we lived with them for a while, and then we lived by ourselves in Coney Island. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, everybody has – you meet people on the street, you pass people, you don't even think sometimes becoming curious. Well, I wonder what their story is. wonder what their mm-hmm. life experience is instead of making assumptions that we just don't even get to know each other. We just pass each other. Right. Who right. or what inspired – no, go ahead. No, no. I, I Actually, that that's actually the point of the book <laughs> is, is to, to introduce the people introduce people to my parents and to the life they had, the life they might have had, uh, so that they they and all the other people who suffered and mostly who were murdered during the Holocaust aren't just numbers, uh, just a statistic, but actually are human beings, uh, could have been your neighbor, uh, somebody's neighbor. And I wanted to introduce them, not just that, as survivors or as anonymous uh, statistics, but as human beings. Mm. Who, Max, who or what inspired you to actually pursue writing? Who birthed your love for books? Uh, writing, well, uh, I think we, again, both my sister and I were avid readers when we were young. Uh, we we got our library cards and we were off to the races. Uh, it, it was again a way to escape from from reality, uh, and we spent and and one of the best times I remember was having read uh, all the books I wanted to read in the children's section of the, of the Brooklyn Public Library branch near where we live. Uh, I got an adult card, and that was a that was a joyous day, uh, and suddenly there were all these other books and all these other worlds that I could explore. So, uh, yeah, I think that, that started us, uh, both of us, and we continued. And, and over time, I just found that uh, I had wanted to be all kinds of other things. I wanted to be a chemist. I wanted to be a pianist. I wanted to be a orchestra conductor. I wanted to be a professor. I wanted to be 
a journalist. I wanted to be all those things. Uh, the only thing that I could do really well, I certainly couldn't do math well, I wasn't very good in science, uh, was, uh, was to write. And so in junior high school, I became the editor of uh, a junior high school newspaper, then in high school became the editor of the high school newspaper. And, and that got me started on the idea that this is what I could do best and this is what I'd like to do. Okay, now before we start talking about Painful Joy, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of your other experiences that you had. I know you, doing my research for the interview, uh, discovered you dreamed of writing stories about Japan earlier in your career. Did you make it to Japan and write for magazines and newspapers there? And if so, what was that experience like? No, uh, I, I made it to Japan eventually, when, uh, but many, many years later. Uh, in college, I actually was an Asian studies and English major. Uh, Asian studies didn't work out because Japanese was way too hard for me. I just couldn't do it. Uh, and so I, I studied the culture and the literature, uh, but I, I couldn't actually become a major because I couldn't speak the language or read in the language. Uh, so uh, so Japan was, was, was far away, and I never – I wrote about Japan, but – only because I was working at Bristol-Myers at the time and I was doing a piece about the healthcare system in, in Japan and what life was like there for mostly for patients and for doctors uh, since Bristol was a, a pharmaceutical company that, that was selling and developing anti-cancer drugs. Okay. Now, after you and your wife Jennifer started your family, you, you, uh, you did pursue journalism. I wanted to ask you, because journalism has changed so much over the years, did being a journalist live up to your expectations? Well, uh, no, <laughs> uh, or sometimes. Uh, I, 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 I started to do both freelance writing and I got a job at, at – uh, I went to journalism school, actually, at, at Berkeley uh, and got a master's in it, uh, and, and that's where I – Get, uh, my my feet into actually doing reporting, and and I liked some of it. Uh, uh, then when I went to work on a on a on a newspaper in New Jersey, my first real journalist journalism job. Uh, again, I liked it, but but uh, at, at that point we we decided we were going to have a family and. And, and journalism is the kind of thing where you really have to devote your life to if you're going to be good at it. You have to go up the sort of ladder of, of, of what journalists do. So first you go to a small newspaper, then you go to a, a larger daily paper. Then you, you work the night shift, uh, the midnight to six shift, and, and you do all these other things. And, and frankly, uh, with, with a family, that, that – that was not what I wanted to do. I think my experience as a child uh, and the family that that I was with and living in uh, and and got me to sort of understand the importance of family in, in, a, in a preeminent way. My father had lost his wife, his first wife, and his and his two little girls. They were killed, and and he devoted his life. Family and and I and I, he was my role model for that, 
uh, and he would do everything and anything. Uh, he worked six days a week. He didn't make much money, mm-hmm. but family was everything to him. And so I decided I, I would continue doing freelance writing, and I, and I had a good time with that. I One day I, I interviewed Mr. Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And okay. It was a, a, lo- <laughs> a lovely and very special experience. I, uh, I went to Liechtenstein and, and sat with the prince and princess of Liechtenstein in their castle. Uh, so, you know, wonderful experiences. When I worked for Bill, for Bill Moyers, uh, we went to the White House, and, uh, and he interviewed President Carter at the time. And I was in the uh, control room downstairs and then went in and sat in the Oval Office and called my wife from there and said, guess where I am? Then I went yeah. over to the – then I went into the cabinet room sat down there and said, and called her again and said, guess where I am? And, and wow. uh, the, pre- the president kept looking at me as though I was, where, where's Waldo? Because I kept popping up before the interview <clears throat> wherever he was. Uh, and and it, was, it was an extraordinary experience, too. So, so I had wonderful experiences, but I, I decided I couldn't devote my life to journalism. I had to devote it, and I wanted to devote it to to my family and what I could do with that in terms of writing and, and reporting and interviewing people and learning about their stories, I could do in other ways. Now, how did you, for our listeners here at Off the Shelf, who might be interested in going into journalism or working on television or radio, can you tell us how you did land that job at WNET and what was it like working there? Yeah, oh, I, I, WNET was, was wonderful. Public television at that time uh, uh, was, was going through the usual crisis of uh, fundraising and everything else, but it had a, a stellar uh, group of people. I worked for Bill Moyers. I worked for Dick Cavett. Uh, I worked for a while for the McNeil Air Report. Uh, and so... Uh, it was a very creative place. It was a very sort of free and open place uh, where where you could meet just the most extraordinary people uh, doing extraordinary things uh, in an environment where they're doing it not for money. They're doing it because they believe in what they're doing, and they believe in, in, in journalism and in reporting the world as it is, uh, as well as a world that we might want to create for ourselves. So uh, I, how, how I got the job, uh, I think I answered an, uh, an ad in a newspaper, and oh. uh, it, it, was, it was fairly simple. <laughs> and, uh, and I interviewed, and, and they liked me, and they liked uh, the fact that I had been freelancing, and, uh, and I had I'd been doing actually television criticism for I don't know if you remember, but there was a, a publication called The Village Voice. In, in yes, okay. and, uh, and and I was I was freelancing uh, television criticism for them, so I I knew something. I had met other TV critics, so I knew a, a bit about the business of television too. So uh, it, you it, got it, it out was, there. It was lovely. Yeah. Oh my God! You just you know, it just seemed like one, you went it, just to hear you talk. It seems like you went from one thing. One door opened after the next. After the, I'm sure it was not yeah. that easy, but but you yeah. but now everything's on the yeah. internet. It just yeah I was wow I, yeah I 
Yeah, I was I was very lucky. I had I I think I counted once. I had nine different jobs in actually the first four years that I went out to work, uh, and it wasn't that. And the economy was terrible, uh, but. I didn't really. I mean, my wife and I, Jennifer, we 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 weren't. We lived modestly, and we were just. I was just looking for a place where I could enjoy working and writing, and uh, and so I would explore. I, I worked in. I I did jacket copy for Macmillan Publishing. I mean, I did all kinds of stuff. It, it was. But it was always with writing, communicating. Uh, and and finally, when I landed at, at public television, and and then I did a, a stint actually at a large PR firm, uh, and I did mostly just the writing there. Uh, and then and then finally at Bristol Myers, where I was for 20 years, and then went out on my own uh, for another 15 years. Uh, it, it 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 was a joy. It, it was always uh, something that difficult. When when you first uh, do it, even doing these interviews now uh, on podcasts, it you, you're you're nervous the first five seconds of it. You know, you just you just anticipate a lot, and then once it starts, it's like uh, it, it isn't going on for a long time, and and that's true uh, of writing too. Once 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 you get your your first paragraph down, the rest flows. Now you were also, as you said, a publicist for Bill Bill Moore's Journal, and you enjoyed that. Right. I have to ask you this, and again, I'm asking for our listeners who might want to do this type of work themselves. Was that a big stretch? Your writing has a, covers a broad range. Was that a big stretch? I know you just said once you get the first few mm-hmm. words no, down. Or no, uh, no. I think if you're interested in the world, and if and and Bill Moyers had had amazing guests uh, or people that he would profile and interview. So uh, you, you write about that, and, and you're learning as you're going along, which is also a great experience. You're learning about the people, which is really fantastic. And that, that was also true when I worked at Bristol, where I talked to hundreds of patients and 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 dozens and dozens of scientists and, and wrote about their stories and the the patients uh, some of them had miraculous cures some of them were not going to be cured that that uh, young children that I would talk to actually uh, who had great dreams and they themselves knew that it wasn't going to happen they had uh, diseases that uh, where drugs could help them only for a short time. And 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 so you 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 get a feel for the spirit, the human spirit, in a way that you wouldn't expect to when you're working for a large company, or even for Bill. Uh, I mean, it, it's Bill's story; it's not my story. But but these others, just writing those stories and 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 getting a, a real sense of, of of human suffering and and human triumphs, again, prepared me, I think, for for then finally delving into my own story and my parents' story. Okay, one more question before we go into painful joy. Okay, you, sure. I, this to you, I think this sounds normal to you. You're going from one, I mean, from freelancing to WNET to you're there when the president's being interviewed to Bristol-Myers Squibb, publicist, right. corporate writing. 
you just seem that it seems fluid. This this shift for you seems fluid, almost like maybe I asked a question. You're like, why? The question is maybe confusing to you. It seems natural to you to do it. But I wanted to ask you, how do you stay open? Because for a lot of us, it can be a struggle when one door closes to even see the opportunity to go another way. Some people, it's just right. it's not as easy. How do you stay open, uh, successfully moving from one discipline I, to another? I, I think that that is one of the great lessons of a very difficult upbringing, and 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 the lessons that my parents taught me, each in a very different way, uh, to never give up. And so you you live in the moment, and and this is how my father I know survived. He lived only in the moment. He never looked at the past, and he actually never looked mm-hmm. at the future because the future for him was to be killed, to be starved to death. The past mm-hmm. was losing everybody he ever loved. So, so the present was important to him. And, and the lesson I learned from my parents who survived in a different way because they were very different per- kinds of people was that you just never give up. You don't, you don't, the world has defeated you. You, 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 you're, you're, you don't allow yourself to be defeated because I saw what defeat looked like. Uh, I saw what, what giving up looked like. And, what, and they taught us that all, all too well. So uh, I, wow. uh, to this day, you know, there are a lot of issues and challenges in our lives, you know, where I'm, I'm, I'm getting older, uh, much older. Uh, and, and, and you just, you know, you, you beat the challenge and you say, oh, this isn't great. <laughs> I don't want this to happen. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's happening. And, and I, I, I've, uh, I studied Buddhism uh, for a long time. And, uh, and, and you, you know, the thing I learned there was something called patient acceptance, which is basically that when you can't control something, you accept it, and you accept it not in an angry way. You accept it in in a modest way and say, "All right, this gives me an opportunity. This is this is not about I've been defeated, but I just have to find another way to to succeed." Wow, I'm so, telling you, you inspired I, me. Yes, just to see your own life. I know your parents. Um, yeah. It is amazing how you just yeah. keep going from one one door, one door, one door. Because sometimes a lot of us we can't get. Uh, can you now yeah. give us Max an overview of your book, Painful Joy? Sure. Okay. First, I I should say because you asked about my website, I do have a website which is maxfriedman.net. Okay. So just so because on there actually you can learn more about painful joy, but also about sort of the world in which I I had lived, and uh, and it's sort of a it, it, it is a supplement in a, in in some ways to painful joy. Painful joy uh, again, as as you said, took me five years, about five years to research and write. Uh, I had avoided my parents' story in in many different ways. Uh, first, because uh, surviving their survival was seemed to me sufficient. Uh, second, because they 
their world was so painful to them and the traumas and the memories that they had. Uh, we didn't, and my sister and I really did never ask them about their lives. I asked my father once, and he told me about only one thing that happened in his life, which was his story for the last time he saw his wife and children. And that was a 20-minute story when I was 20 years old. Otherwise, I didn't know anything about it. And I knew that asking him clearly would be painful to him. And and we saw them suffer enough, and they had suffered enough before we met them. Uh, so this was not for my sister or for me to do. So we didn't. And so by the time I decided to do painful to to find out who they were, where I came from, uh, why I became what I became to some degree. Uh, and by that time, they were gone. And so I, there was no one to ask. Uh, and most of the records, frankly, were were destroyed in, during the Holocaust. So, you know, the Germans, most of the records of Jews uh, in most of the places where the Germans went, were, were kept in synagogues, uh, the records of their births. All the, they, civil society and Jewish society often were not the same thing in many of these countries, especially for poor people. Uh, and so that was all destroyed because the synagogues were all burnt and destroyed. So it was very hard begin to find out about them, and that's why it took a very long time, and I was lucky in meeting some people who helped me along the way, and my my wife and I actually went to Sweden, went to Poland, uh, went to Germany, went to Israel to to find out more from various archives uh, that, that we had identified. Uh, so it was a long journey to find out, and, and, and it was an important journey. Uh, first, I thought just for the families that I had, my, my kids, my, uh, who knew my parents, but uh, their, their children who didn't, my grandchildren, my sister had four boys. A few, three of them knew my, uh, my mother and father, but... Uh, uh, they otherwise they had families and their kids didn't know anything and so it was very important and then as I wrote the story and as I showed it to just uh, a few people uh, they told me that this was this was more or less a universal story that needed to be told not only because the Holocaust was being forgotten and the survivors were all dying or dead uh, just from old age or illness uh, but it was our responsibility to tell the world still to, to transform them into human beings. When, when people went into concentration camps and those who even survived into slave labor camps, uh, they were given numbers. Their names were taken away. They, they were not treated as humans. Uh, they were dehumanized. And, and the process of dehumanizing people is, I think, the central, the core of all genocides, and it's the core of all of our, many of our political and divisions in, in racism uh, and anti-Semitism. These, these are all, they, they come in large measure from looking at people as the other, 
and not only as the mm-hmm. other, but the, as the enemy. And the only way you can deal with an enemy in some cases, and even these days in our political discussions, is, is to kill your enemy. They become mm. so hateful to you. And, and that is what, that's the core of, and, you know, that's what the Nazis did. They, they made these, the Jews and the Romans, uh, the, you know, the gypsies, uh, the mentally ill, uh, gay people, anyone who was not uh, blue-eyed and blonde and, and had, had pure blood, uh, as as you know, as racially inferior, studied racism as though it were a science, as opposed to an an hateful, a hateful ideology. So all of that, particularly these days, needs to be discussed and put in context. And 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 so my hope was to take these two strangers that you start they start out as you know, people you don't know at all or maybe don't care about. And and by the end of, of the journey, uh, you you get to care about them. You get to feel empathy for them. Mm-hmm. You get to, and if you can feel empathy for strangers in a book, two characters in a book that happens just to be real characters, not made up, uh, then then that, that could spread to other parts of your life and should. Oh my goodness! Well, thank you for writing it. I think it is something that that so much in different uh, when we just treat each other so poorly. Then there's this this uh, this urgency to hide the wrongs we've done, like just get it out of the books. This we're not going to put it in films. Oh, just oh don't yeah, talk about it's it. It's horrible. I, and it, yeah, my, my yeah, and then yeah. my wife is a, a, a librarian, and I mean it's terrible what's going on with books. Uh, you know. In school, horrible. Yeah, we, we don't, we don't, we do the wrong, and then it's like, okay, now let's all just forget about it and act like it never happened. And and that, right. that is just so unfortunate. So thank you for writing uh, "Painful Joy." Now you said you never, you and your siblings, your sister never asked your parents like what happened to them. You never brought it up. They never, ever, ever. So you're coming up with this idea to write this book, their stories. They're no longer here. They never spoke anything about it because I could only imagine how hard to research for this book must have been. Yeah. Well, two things. First, my, my father, in fact, never spoke about it. He never spoke about his past at all. My mother only spoke about her past within two contexts. One, she talked about, and, and that that's why we we turned out how we ever turned out. Uh, she talked about concentration camps. She never talked about who she was before. Uh, she had one little one story which she told us again and again, which actually turned out not to be true, which I can tell you about later. But uh, otherwise, she would just talk to us about her time in the concentration camps, about all the terrible things that she saw, all the people that were murdered, people who were shot while she was standing in the middle of all this. So this was our, I mean, I hate to say it, but this was our bedtime stories. This is what ah. she told us. And this is all yeah. we knew. So the, we didn't. <laughs> it was enough, believe me. It was more than enough. 
and and then uh, interestingly, uh, so I stayed away. I stayed away from the subject of the Holocaust. I stayed away from them and their lives because uh, clearly, uh, they're, they're, whatever I knew was was in for my mother too much, and she would have told us other things. I I assumed if she wanted to, because she 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 was a talker. So uh, uh, and so 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 that's what it was. So it was very hard. It was it was hard to begin. I didn't know where to begin, and I happened to have a friend who. Uh, who I had coffee with, and I and I told him that I was thinking about doing this this book, or at least learning something, and then see where it would go. And and he told me that he actually had met somebody at a at a high school reunion just very recently, and and that that guy's son. Were, had a Holocaust studies that were, ran or worked in a Holocaust study center in Munich. He wasn't Jewish. He was actually Austrian. And, he, and the history that he was looking into was the Holocaust and wanting to keep that Holocaust story alive in Germany, actually. Uh, and Germany's actually done a, a very good job compared to most other countries, including the U.S., in doing that. Uh, uh, ironically, uh, but in any case, uh, so I, I sent the guy an email. Uh, his name is Giles, and he, he over time we, we got to talk, and he sent me a list of a uh, hundred or two hundred things that I should look into, uh, and and uh, it was all terribly overwhelming, and I started doing what I could. And every once in a while, I would get in touch with him and say, you know, I learned this. Is there somebody else I could talk to? So the the actual Holocaust part of their story, I was able to piece together fairly well by talking to experts in in of, who are expert in specific aspects of the Holocaust. For instance, my father was on a death march at the end of near the end of the war. Uh, and I spoke to a person who knew everything there was to know about death marches. And, and, and she told me about the death march that he was likely on. Uh, so all of that, it, it became learning many, many things that, that were disparate and unconnected and, and letting your, my brain start putting it together when I was asleep or, or otherwise uh, to, to unravel and then piece together again uh, their story uh, and then actually go to a lot of these places to try to find out more or to just immerse yourself in, in the geography of uh, my mother's, uh, where my mother lived, for example, where she lived had become the central, uh, where she lived for 25 years in Poland, in Krakow, had become the central uh, theme uh, and was used, the building in which she lived, was used in Schindler's List as the, as the setting for the Krakow. Wow. So it had become a tourist attraction. And, and there was a, you know, and, and I only found this out because I was, I, we were going to go to Poland, and so I was trying to 
find every place, every address that my parents had had from the time that they were born. Uh, and I had found a lot. And when I got to my mother and where she lived in Krakow, uh, I put in her address, just a, a street name and number, Josepha 12. And suddenly Google tells me, sends me over to Steven Spielberg and Schindler's List and, and then shows me the building that she lived in and, and then shows me the pictures from the film where it is being all recreated in that building. Uh, so, uh, so we went there and actually uh, watched a tour guide give a tour, and it was the first time I ever actually walked over to anybody in my adult life, and this was in 2018, and actually said something about my parents and the Holocaust in a very direct way. And I, and I interrupted this woman who was telling the story of, I guess, Schindler's List at the time, which was a story that was very close to what my mother's story was. Uh, and I said, excuse me, but my mother lived here. And all wow. the family lived here. And they were all killed here. And, uh, and then I couldn't talk anymore because I choked up. But, but it was the mm. first time I ever did that. Uh, so, and then it became easier to do it. And I uh, now, uh, as I'm talking about painful joy, uh, I do it a lot. <laughs> and I still oh my God. once in a while. Oh, yeah. my God. I can't even imagine. It's just certain things that have happened in history, humans, that we do to each other. I, I, I can't even imagine imagine it can't even imagine it now in painful joy when the when the book when the book opens do you tell your parents stories from their youth up and if not what time period is it when the book begins yeah well the the book tries to find out everything i uh, painful joy tries very hard to piece together their lives from the moment that they were born they were born in these little villages. We visited those. I had a map of where my mother's, her, her father was a tailor, and they moved from house to house to house, I guess, because they had many children, many of whom died in childbirth or afterwards. So it was a family of 13 kids, uh, and uh, about eight of, eight of them survived, but survived to adulthood then uh, my mother and only her sister survived the war. Everybody else and their families were, mm. and her parents, they were all murdered. Uh, but uh, so the book actually opens with my father writing a letter to a lawyer in Sweden asking how that lawyer could help get him and a woman he just met, the woman who would become my mother, uh, and who, to, with whom he fell in love after two days, uh, how to get to the United States. So that's how the story opens. It opens with, as I like to say, with love. And, uh, because, and, and that was probably the most startling thing that I discovered, because I discovered this letter written in Yiddish, and I had to translate it. Uh, but it's a letter that is a love letter. The relationship between my mother and father that my sister and I saw was, I would not say love. I would say 
they needed each other. I would say it was a it was an opportunity to start again with somebody who understood their story because they were both survivors, so they could understand that they have nightmares and they would get sick and that they had a history with other families and other other lives, and they would understand that. So I think that's what attracted them to each other. But just seeing the word love out of my father, who was a very sweet, loving man, uh, and uh, and then understanding that and then putting that into the context of their lives, the, uh, the book is called Painful Joy because I found a poem that was written in the Middle Ages. And it was a poem... Uh, written by a, a Jewish poet, as it turned out. Uh, and it was about, it was called Painful Joy. And it was about what happens to love when love is touched by death. And mm. that, as soon as I saw that, I said, that has to be the title of this book. Because, you know, their love, their relationship was so touched by death uh, that it had to be a different kind of relationship altogether. And uh, and so the book begins with that, and then it ends with another story, which is about my father and the last time he used language because he died of Alzheimer's disease. And, and not to give away the book, but, but it, it it is touching and it ends with love because it basically... My my mother took care of him while he had at home uh, at a different mm. near my sister in Mobile, but uh, Alabama. But uh, but and so she actually showed love in a way she hadn't, I think, ever before. Uh, and and then my father, he's my sister. I mean, my my wife and my two sons and. He had known us, but he didn't know anymore who we were. Uh, and and we would visit him while he was there. I would go, I would try to see him every two or three weeks. I'd fly down there. And, uh, and he looked at us just once. And he looked at us and he started crying. And he started crying and he said in Yiddish, he didn't speak English anymore and he barely spoke at all. Uh, he said, I know I love you but I don't know why. And, that's, so, and that's how the book ends, actually, pretty much. Uh, it, and so it's a bookend, and the first half of the book is totally about uh, their lives before they met each other. So oh, okay. uh, it's, it's two separate stories, one for my father, one for my mother, parallel in many ways, but 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 different, and then you you can actually see where they come together as well, and then and we come to the United States, and now it's a new family. It's the four of us, and and that's the second half of the book, and it's almost just by chance I wrote it almost with equal parts. It, it's it's sort of odd how it happened just by writing, uh, but the second half of the book is now how did this family survive as a family, what happened to them in the United States, basically, from the time that that we arrived in, in 1952 till the time they died in 
93 and 98, and then, then looks at so our lives in Brooklyn together, so mostly about our lives together, and then my sister and my life taking care of them or being affected by them in one way or another, including things that happened uh, when we visited Sweden a, a second and third time and, and what happened going back to where uh, they met and where I and my sister were born. Now, how old were your so, parents when they met? They met in Sweden. How old were they? they, they was yeah, they, some... they were actually, yeah, they, they, uh, they were in their 30s already uh, because, oh. my, my, because they had already, my father had a wife and, and two little girls. He had a four-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old. So, uh, and my mother had a husband. Uh, they hadn't started a family yet, but uh, but they they married. Well, my father married in 1937, so he was 27 when when he was married. My my mother married when she was about 30. It was an unusually they they married relatively late in their lives. But for that time, uh, most most marriages were were arranged uh, for them. And so uh, they would, you know, they would, because the families are so large, I think the mother and father were trying to get rid of these kids and let somebody else take care of them. Uh, so, because they, they were poor people. I mean, you know, my, my mother's father, again, was a tailor. At one point, he has 13 kids. Good luck with that. Uh, you know, and then he ends up with eight. Uh, my my father, uh father died when my father was four years old suddenly and my father was the breadwinner starting at age 12 and wow. and he then he stopped so he has a sixth grade education as does my my mother or did and so uh it follows all these different sort of little tangents that that occur to them and and you get to understand really in a way how they could have survived because, in a way, uh, they spent their young adult life in training for surviving. Uh, I think that's the only way I, I, I can explain it. Uh, a lot of luck and a lot of perseverance, a lot of never giving up, but also they, they, they had difficult lives before. And uh, my, my, yeah, so... Oh my God! The story we it took a long time to answer that. I'm sorry. No, I'm so enjoying the, enjoying uh, what you're sharing. We're we're speaking with Max Friedman, and he's the author of Painful Joy, and he's he's done so much work with like Bristol Myers Squibbs, the Bill Moore's Journal, WNET, and uh, 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 so many different forms of communication from journalism to television to now the, his book, Painful Joy, about his parents and. His their their story, his own family story. I have to ask you, as we got about nine minutes left in today's show, is that your parents on on the book cover? They look so cool. Yeah, they, <laughs> I, I know, I know. It's, it's the coolest thing they ever did. All right, yeah, <laughs> uh, right. The, the, the two of them are dressed up on a on a motorcycle. That I don't know where my father got that from. Uh, this is before they were married. So this is when they were still sort of courting, I guess you could say. Uh, uh, yeah, but they're they're on the cover of, of, 
a painful joy. And if people are interested, they 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 can see pain. You they can you can go to my books my website and you can see it, or you can actually put painful joy in in and and, and you can get it in on Amazon and uh it's 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 an easy book to get that way uh but uh, yeah that that's there that's uh, the, the cover is uh, i had a friend do the cover and uh we found that we found that picture of them on a motorcycle all dressed up they were this was this picture was taken 6 months if you can imagine 6 months after their liberation from one of the worst concentration camps that existed uh. Bergen-Belsen Bergen-Belsen was where Anne Frank died. Uh, oh, my mother man. was there then, uh, but but it was a horrible, horrible place. It, it, uh, bodies were horrible, and the book yeah. talks about some of that. But uh, but that so it was six months before that they had just left that place, mm. and and six months from that picture they get married, and they get married on Christmas wow. Day. Uh, 1946, and they get married that day because they wanted, they didn't know anyone. And they wanted to have the people they worked with come to their wedding, uh, which was not much away. But anyway, and they were working in, in factories in this little town called Homstad. And so Christmas Day, everybody was off. So that's how they picked Christmas Day for to have a wedding. Um, yeah. What have readers been saying? What a story. You know, every time somebody comes on here on Off the Shelf Books, I always tell them you can write a great book description, a great title, you can do keywords, et cetera. To, to, a lot of people would buy, like, a book if they knew it existed. And so a lot of people don't even know of a books out there. They might absolutely love it. Um, what what This is a story, when you, the way you're sharing what you're sharing so wonderfully here where you just I gotta get this book when you listen to you the author talk about it what have readers been saying about painful joy yeah if you go the best way is just go go to Amazon or put in painful joy you go to Amazon and uh, you'll see there are uh, I don't know about 30 reviews maybe people wrote Lots of stuff. Uh, some stuff I never, never imagined you could see in the book, but uh, it was it was well beyond me. They, they gave me more credit than than I could ever uh, deserve. But uh, yeah, you you could read about it, and and I think most most people uh, w- would like it. They they were touched by it. I think they 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 found it. I try in the book to put everything into historical context. I try, uh, particularly on the, the stories of my parents, I try to try to explain what what the world was like around the time when they were born, around the time when they were married, around the time when the Holocaust occurs, and what else is happening around that time that affects them one way or another. So, so I think people learn. Uh, things that they might not know, things that I certainly never knew. Uh, and I thought I knew a lot just because I read a lot. But, uh, but uh, yeah, so I think people will be touched by it. People will get to know these two people. There are a few 
there are some reviews in there from actually from friends who read the book, and uh, and a few of them actually knew my parents, uh, but not, not mostly. And the ones who didn't had heard about my parents from me, and uh, they they found my parents to be quite multidimensional. And I think that was the point. The point was, don't just look at them as two sad people who survived a horrific time. Look at them that way, yes, because that's the truth. But also look at them as whole human beings who had all kinds of things going on in their lives before, during, and after. And 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 that's what I want. That's the picture I wanted to paint of them. Okay. Oh my goodness! Now we got less than three minutes. Do you see yourself ever writing a novel? Oh, I, I, I you know, the, the the my problem is that I spend so much of my life in reality, <laughs> and then trying to escape it in fantasy. That, uh, or not even the fantasy, just escape it. Uh, that I, I, I read mostly nonfiction. <laughs> and the okay. only fiction that I, and I read, uh, and therefore can, you know, are like, you know, stories where that have happy endings one way or another, or mysteries, or, you know, it's weird stuff. Uh, I don't, I, I don't see, I, I thought once that I would. I thought once that I would actually write a story about them, but a fictional story about them, a story about what would happen if the, what happened to them if they still had their first families, what kind of lives would they have lived if if the Holocaust hadn't happened. Uh, mm. I still may do that. I actually wrote the ten or twelve pages of that story, and. Uh, and and I and I wrote it at the very end of writing this story because it made me feel good. It it made okay. me feel like I I could give them a happy ending. Mm, uh, how beautiful! Yeah. Yes. So, where can who, where, who knows? Okay. Well, we'll look for it at your website. Where can off the shelf listeners get a copy of your book, Painful Joy? Yeah. So uh, just go to Amazon. Dot com. Go to barnesandnoble.com, uh, and there's a Kindle editions, uh, which costs almost nothing. There's If people have Kindle Unlimited, it's free, actually, uh, because you get to read almost any Kindle book for free. Uh, otherwise, uh, there's a hardcover edition. There's softcover edition. Uh, they're, they're already in used bookstores. They're all over the place. Uh, you can ask a local book seller, uh, and they're in some libraries as well. So there are oh. lots of places where you can go and get it. Painful Joy. We're speaking with the author of Painful Joy, Max Friedman, and I encourage you to visit him online at maxfriedman.net, M-A-X-F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N.net. Again, maxfriedman.net. You can do a search for him on the search engines, Max Friedman, author of Painful joy. What a life. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And here, there is no quit in Max. If, if, you, if you came in on the middle or end of this interview, once it finishes streaming, you can listen to it in its entirety and share it with as many people as you like. But that was one thing that jumped out about him to me when it, just talking about his different writings 
he just keeps going. He just keeps going forward. It, it, some of us, a lot of us get stuck. You, lose, you, lose, you get laid off from a job and you get stuck. I've seen people get stuck for years, years when something changes. Max just keeps on going. So that's something about him I really appreciate. Um, I really appreciate. So encourage you, encourage you again. If you came into the middle or end of the show, wait till it finishes streaming. Then you can listen to it in its entirety and share with others and get a copy of Painful Joy. What a story by Max Friedman. His own life is amazing. His own life. So thank you, Max, for taking time out of your day to be here with us and bless you and your family. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And to all of our listeners, as I always tell you, you are amazing. You are incredible. You're awesome. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. Max, I'll shoot you an email with the link to the interview when it finishes uh-huh. streaming. Great. Thank you so much. Well, thank you thank so you, much. Thank it, was, it was lovely talking to you. It was like sitting around in a in a living room and just talking. So it's great. Uh, thank you so much to our listeners. See you back here next Saturday at uh, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Bye for now. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. 